All right, here's where we are, and here's what I kind of, we're in this series on John. Hope you have your, uh, your journal, your, open up that, or your Bible app to John chapter two. And what we're gonna talk about today has been uh, percolating for a while. I've actually been looking forward to this particular passage and, and, and next week, ever since we kind of planned out John. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the title of the message on the front end and then explain it, because as soon as I give you the title, there are gonna be a, a number of presuppositions based on kind of how you're wired that might come to mind. And what we're gonna look at today out of John chapter two, uh, I'm just gonna call the marks of a miracle. The marks of a miracle. Now, as soon as I say the word miracle, I know there's several things that uh, we probably need to address even before we jump in here. But one thing we need to address is it is easy to get cynical when you hear preachers say, of the word miracle. And the reason that is, is because there's actually a ton of bad teaching out there in Christendom about miracles. You've got faith healers, you've got all this kind of miracle on demand. God is my genie in a bottle. If I rub the bottle the right way, then God is obligated prosperity on demand. And then preachers get cynical because people like you, you come up to us and you say, well, God told me to tell you. And the problem with that is God didn't tell us, and so we're not sure if God told you and we're just missing out, or if you're cray-cray. We don't know which one it is. And so we're like, all right, I don't know if that's a miracle or not. But here's what my challenge is, is don't get so scared, don't get so scared of the wrong thing that you don't expect God to do anything miraculous in your life and in your family and in your church anymore. Matter of fact, I was surprised when I looked at some statistics. Two out of three Americans, 67%, said, you know what, miracles are possible today. And in a secularized, enlightenment kind of culture, that's, that's higher than I thought. Two out of five adults said they have actually had a miracle, they've seen a miracle in their life. That's like 94 million people just in our country. Three quarters of 1,100 doctors surveyed are convinced that miracles can occur today. That's actually, that percentage of doctors and physicians is actually higher than the U.S. population percentage-wise in general. And so it's not surprising, six out of 10 physicians said they pray with their patients individually. So don't get cynical. Caution is fine, cynicism is not. Second thing before we jump in there is God is definitely a miracle-working God. Let you kind of know where I am and just, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, then you can understand that, you know what? God can perform miracles. If you can think that the tomb is empty, then God can perform miracles. And John, at the very start of the book, starts the whole thing that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in week one, it says that, you know what? Jesus steps out on the front porch of heaven. He is the creative agent, the second person of the Trinity. And so if he can do those things, then the Bible is is not apologetic about those at all. You're gonna see a lot of miracles. Jesus heals people, raises people from the dead. The tomb is empty, all of those. And there is no indication that the miracles have stopped. And so just by the way, when I use the term miracle, there's probably a couple different ways you can think about it. One of them is sort of like when God overrides some laws that he's already put into place to make our world function. And so when you see like a magnet pulling up metal stuff, it is in one way, That law is defying the law of gravity or superseding the law of gravity. So sometimes a miracle can be used in this sense that, you know what, God like puts on hold the way that he has made the world operate. A bigger, broader definition, the one I'm gonna use today, is basically when God does something in your life, in your family, in our church, that we could not do in a thousand years. No matter how hard you tried, no matter how hard your effort was, you could not do that. You can't make it happen. 
And then number three, uh, what's another thing we need to know about miracles is we need to know that God wants to, listen to me church, God wants to do some awesome miraculous stuff in our life. I have no doubt about that at all. God wants to do some awesome miraculous stuff in our homes, in our church, with our kids, stuff we cannot do for ourselves. God still answers prayer. And I don't know about you, but as I prepared this, I was like, I want more miraculous in my life. I want more stuff that's not explainable just because I have this certain chart or this graph where we put these processes in place. I want some stuff that basically is like, you know what, the only way that happened is that God moved. The only way that that happened in that guy's life is God did something that he could not do. It's not based off talent, it's not based off platform, it's not based off effort, it's based on the fact, look what God did. And so here's what, I, I want you to lean in today, because there is not a doubt that many, thousands of people have built more church. You came to church today with a heavy heart. And I'm not sure what the heavy heart might be. Maybe it is connected to Mother's Day, but maybe it's just way above that. Maybe it's something that you have had a heavy heart about for weeks or months or even years. Some of you, you understand, it's like, you know what? My marriage is really in a very, very difficult spot. We're gonna smile and put on the nice dress for Mother's Day, but the bottom line is, if something doesn't change, if there's not a, quote, miracle that takes place, you know what? Our marriage is simply a matter of putting a few pages on the calendar and it's gone. Others of you, it's a prodigal that has broken your heart and you prayed, you prayed till you're tired of praying. You tell you, and you don't even pray anymore because you're like, you know what, I prayed for two years, I see nothing. And the mama in you is like, you know what, today it's gonna start again. It's gonna start again today. Others of you, it's a health situation. Others of you, it's a financial situation. Others of you, it's an addiction. I'll read some of them here in a few minutes, but I mentioned last week when we did our 21 days of prayer, hundreds and hundreds of cards saying, you know what, this addiction, alcoholism, uh, cocaine addiction, these kind of a porn addiction, I, just, I can't break the addictions. What do you need, what do you need? There's some stuff you can do, but bottom line is you need, to, you need God to do a miracle. And so when we look at this today, this is actually the first recorded miracle of Jesus. He might've done some other ones, but in, in John's gospel, it's the first one. And here's what I'm asking. Understand what I'm gonna tell you is not a formula. God's not a formula. It's not, like, it's not like a vending machine that you can put in the quarters and then pull the handle and then all of a sudden, hey, look what happened. That's not it. God's not a formula. God's a person. God's a person. But he's a loving, caring father if you are in Christ. And he's a loving, caring God even if you're not in Christ right now. And so the question is, uh, how do I... What's my role? What are the marks? What does it look like if God wants to do the miraculous in my life? Because here's what I want to tell you. For some of us, the miraculous is not that far away. So let me read the passage. I'm going to kind of work through it. I will say this on the front end. There's two or three little necessary rabbit chases that I will try to deal with quickly so as to limit the amount of emails. Okay, so here's, uh, let me put down a couple of thoughts. And uh, I felt particularly Baptist this week, so there's actually three points uh, today, normally there's not, but this is three. So jot down three. This is again, not a formula. These are just indicators. These are marks or markers that you see. And that as you look at the miracles in the Bible, so many of them, they have this pattern. And so the first one's somewhat obvious. And the first one is simply this, is that miracles do what we cannot do. Miracles do what we cannot do. Look at verse one and two. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding 
in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So a couple of things just culturally about that time and this story, and that is that weddings in that day and time were not just quick little things at the JP. They were not quick little endeavors. They were week-long parties and celebrations that were planned for at least a year. It was the biggest thing that would happen in the life of the family. And some of y'all will like this. In that culture, the groom's family paid for the wedding. All right, some of you are like, amen, let's bring that back. All right, let's bring it back. But the bottom line is that's what happened. And so what the groom was showing when he performed and he had this awesome celebration, part of what he was doing in that honor-shame culture was showing the bride's family, I got what it takes to take care of your daughter. I've got what it takes to provide. I've got what it takes to plan and prepare and provide. And so the whole thing was more than just a ceremony. It was an indication. It was a sign. I have what it takes. And uh, Jesus is invited and he goes to the party. And his disciples apparently got invited as well. Now, Here's, a, here's rabbit chase number one. It is always interesting to me that Jesus got invited to a lot of parties in the New Testament. A lot of times, well-meaning Christians will come up to me and say, should I go to my company party? Should I go? Because there will be drinking there or there will be celebration there. Or that. Should I go to my neighborhood party? And they're well-meaning. And I would just say, realize this, that if we're trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, Jesus went to a lot of parties. He did so to such an extent he got criticized for it. If you look at uh, Matthew, don't even look there, just, just listen. In Matthew, it says, Matthew chapter 11, it says, he is, the religious leaders say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, Jesus went to a lot of parties in the New Testament. So what do we gain as far as navigating our culture right now? Let me give you two quick things in this brief rabbit chase. You see two different ways of approaching culture in the New Testament. The first one, you're, if you're not new to Bible study, you probably know them. They're called the Pharisees. What you might not know is the word Pharisee means literally the separated ones because that described their philosophy on how they engaged with culture. And so a Pharisee would separate himself from the culture and getting away from all those sinners, because the bottom line is, I don't want all that sin rubbing off on me. And so because I don't want to have all that sin rubbing off on me, what I'll do is I will separate myself from those sinners down there. And the problem is, and the fact that obviously Jesus points out a number of times is they make zero impact they make zero impact on the culture. They don't even know Jesus when he is literally across the table from him. They studied about him. They knew all 323 prophecies about him. And yet when they stand face to face with him, they don't know him and they certainly don't make an impact on culture. Now, the second one that we don't hear as much about that is the other ditch that you can put the car in and that is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. Sorry, corny preacher joke, right? So the idea was this, is they, they, didn't, they were, they were kind of like, all right, we're going to get away from the Bible. We're going to get away from the Bible. And as we get away from that, you and I might call that theological liberalism. We're going to get away from this. And the problem is, 
Because they looked just like the culture, they had no prophetic voice to speak into the culture. There was no difference. Then what you see, Jesus perfectly engaging the culture without compromising to the culture. He spent time with them, but he didn't act just like them. And that's the thread you and I have to weave. A lot of times some singles will ask me and they're like, hey, hey, you know, hey, Jesus went to parties, so I'm going to parties. Okay, okay, that is true. Jesus didn't go there for entertainment. He went there for the salvation of the people he was there for their good. So don't use it as a crutch just to dishonor Jesus, but do realize it's in the middle. It's not separating yourself from, but it's not being just like it. And if that wasn't a little bit of a hot topic, here's another one, verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. All right, time out real quick. I'm gonna try to be precise and quick at the same time. We are a Bible church. We teach the Bible. It is not accurate to teach the Bible to say that the Bible always condemns alcohol. It's not, that's not even the issue. When you, when you teach like that, it undermines the other stuff that you say. Because you can clearly go to, let's say, the book of Psalms, and it says that, for example, wine is a gift from God. It's actually a picture of the blessing of God. Here, you have got to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to make that wine that Jesus turns from water into grape juice. I mean, in a few minutes, it's going to say, you know what? Think about how silly that would be to say, you know what? He's going to say, hey, most people, they put the good wine out first and then the cheap stuff later. All right, we put the Chardonnay on top. Most people do it that way, and they put the natty light on the bottom. Now, that's, what, that's what he's saying. But what he's really but then he says, you did the opposite. You put the top. Now, question, how much grape juice would one have to drink to get drunk? You'd drown before you'd get drunk, all right? You can't have that much grape juice. So here's what I'm saying. Let me give you a couple of things, and again, we can talk about it. We've talked about it before. So what is it? Two ditches you can get into. You can get into legalism or you can get into license. For, for a lot of folks, it is super wise for you to be a teetotaler. It really is. Based on the way you grew up, based on the, maybe the kids in the house, maybe based on uh, being a stumbling block, based on the fact that, you know what, you can't just have one glass of wine. You can't. Last time you had a glass of wine, you had seven glasses of wine and you made a fool of yourself and you have a pattern of that. So bro, you can't handle it. So stop it. That's wisdom. Here's the best way to probably summarize this without spending the whole sermon on it. What God, what God condemns is always wrong. What God condemns is always wrong. What God condones is always right. What God neither condones nor condemns is a matter of conscience. What God condemns, if God says that's wrong, it's always wrong. I don't care how you fluff it up. If God condones it and says it's good, that's always good. But if he doesn't condone it or condemn it, that is a matter of conscience. That is the priesthood of the believer. That's for you to be able to ask the question, what is the wise choice? What does wisdom dictate that I do right here? And for some of you, it's like, no, I shouldn't. And that's a wise decision. But here's the part you gotta be careful. The part is if God convicts you of that, which is fine, or if God doesn't, but if God, whatever God convicts you to do that's right for you, James says it this way, if you, think it's sin, if you think it's wrong and you do it anyway, that's sin. In other words, you're going against your conscience. So bottom line is don't look down your nose at either one. 
If somebody says, I can have a glass of wine with dinner, that's not unbiblical. If somebody says, I, I can't do it and it's wrong for me, don't look down your nose at them either. Okay, so, all right, I'll give you my email at the end. So I'm just telling you, come with scripture if you're gonna come, all right? Verse four, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I know some of you are like, that sounds kind of rude on Mother's Day. Woman, I mean, uh, if I said that to my mom growing up, it would not go well with my soul, all right? Or my backside, it would not have gone well. Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's actually not as harsh as it sounds. It is kind of formal, by the way. It's not harsh, but it is pretty formal. But here's the reason, look what he says. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now here, real quickly, in the, in the Gospel of John, he uses this phrase over and over and over again. And the word hour there is always talking about the passion of the Christ. It's always talking about when the clock gets going, and in particular, that last week of Jesus' life. That last week of Jesus' life with the trial and the, uh, the flogging and, this, and, and the, 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 the spitting on and the crucifixion, all of that, that's what he's talking about. Because here's what Jesus knows. As soon as he does his first miracle, the clock starts to tick, the ball starts to roll, and it's all rolling toward the cross. You'll see this over and again. When he does a miracle, people want to come and make him king, and he's like, no, my hour's not yet come. And then interestingly, when he's in the garden or when he's about to be crucified, he's like, you know what? For this hour I came. This is the reason that I came. So what is it, kind of in the big, what is it that you need God to do that you can't do? What is it that you need God to do that you can't do? Four or five weeks ago, at every campus, when we had thousands of these cards up here, it ran the gamut. And let me, let me just say thank you for being transparent. If you've been around just church in general a lot of your life, or if you've been to a bunch of different churches, one of the things that churches can get into is what I would just call the plastic Christian life. You come in there and, hey, brother, how you doing? Blessed and highly favored. Well, you know, and, and it's just not real because your life is falling apart. Thank you for being real. We had everything from, please pray for my daddy, little kid, please pray for my daddy to stop yelling at my mama. Dude, please help me break this addiction. I've tried and I've tried and I just can't break it. Do a broken relationship with my son-in-law and my daughter. See, I mean, that's just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's eight words, but man, that is a lot of pain. My broken relationship with my son-in-law and my daughter. You know how much pain, you know how much courage that takes to just jot that down and come and lay it before God? My sister, my prodigal, my relationship with my mom, my marriage, my addiction. My daughter's marriage. My son-in-law's alcoholism. Loved ones, what is it that you need God to do that if God doesn't work, it's not gonna happen? Is it that child you're worried about the direction they're taking? Is it that addiction that's soon to be found out that if you don't stop it, it's gonna like mess up everything? What is it? Miracles flow, miracles go to where our need is. 
And so here's some of the best advice you'll ever get. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So marker number two is miracles are linked to our obedience. Man, I wish, I could, I wish, you could, I wish we could all love this. Miracles are linked to our obedience. You're like, explain that. I really can't explain it other than the fact of saying that there is a link between what we do and then God doing what only God can do. I mean, what the mom say? He just says, do whatever he tells you. That is great discipleship advice. Just do what he tells you to do. And just think of the, think of the things he's told you to do. I mean, for some of you, it's church stuff. It's, it's like, you know, hey, get baptized. Told you the other day, there's like 280 folks that is like, I'm on team Jesus and then just won't even get dunked. I mean, what is that? Others of you, it's I don't know how many times till we're blue in the face, especially coming out of COVID. Some of you guys got out of connect group. You're not getting back in the connect group and you'd rather, you would rather be miserable than uncomfortable. Bottom line. It's like, I don't like where it's going now, but it's uncomfortable to jump back in there with a group of friends. Well, be uncomfortable. For the glory of God, be uncomfortable. Share the gospel, forgive, reconcile. Some of you, God said, you need to go get some marriage counseling. If you don't get marriage counseling and somebody pouring into you, you're gonna be seeing your kids on the weekends. And uh, if Jesus tells you to do something, just do it. If I could just say two things on that as well. He says, the mom says, do what he says. It doesn't say have good intentions. Good intentions. Good intentions are not the same thing as obedience. Well, I intend to do that, or I intend to get counseling, or I'm gonna forgive him someday, or we're gonna reconcile at some point in time, or at some point we're gonna get counseling, or at some point we're gonna get into community here. At some one of these days, you know, when the stars align and my whole family's in town, I'll get baptized. Good intentions. And hell is paved with good intentions. Here's another one it's not, and this is the number one idol in our culture. It's not about how you feel. All right, if it's about how you feel and Jesus has made clear you're to do this, you don't understand lordship very well. You just don't. It's not how you feel. I mean, how you feel, how you, how you feel. You be you, boo. I mean, that's the, that's the thing in our You just be you, boo. It's like, no, no, no. Don't just be you, boo. All right, you as a black-hearted sinner, that's the deal. Like, don't do, well, the Joneses, are, the Joneses are going to hell. Don't follow the Joneses, okay? All right, if you're a Christian, you follow Jesus. And so what has Jesus told you to do? Because the most valuable thing you brought to church today is not that iPhone 13, the most valuable thing that you, it's not your wallet, it's not that Amex card, the most valuable thing that you brought into the room today, the thing that you hold in your lap, the thing that makes the difference so many times between a rewarding life and a regretful life is simply your yes. It's just your yes. Three little letters, yes. The corresponding smaller word is no. This either opens up a gateway, just think about it. What if, what if the miracle was like one step of obedience away from pouring into your life? What if it was just one step away? This little phone right here, I'm not, I think we talked about this during the, on, on, when I was preaching to an empty room at the start, I think that was when it was, but here, this little phone, just like your phone, every email you send, every text that you send, all this stuff here is based on, and I don't understand it, but I read up on it, all right, it's called coding, coding. 
Not codeine, coding, all right, coding. All right, code is what it is. All this stuff, all the stuff you do, it's all code, 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 bits and bytes and all that kind of stuff. But all of that code and all of those texts and all of those emails and all of that stuff is basically based off the number one and the number zero. That's all it is. Yes or no, on or off. The whole thing's based on that. All of that power just in a zero or a one. And loved ones, what I'm telling you is the power of obedience right here in the story. She says, just do what he says. And look at all these markers of obedience. Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, all right? So you guys, somebody do the math, man. I'm a Texas Tech grad, so I can't multiply. So it's just basically six stone water jars. You see a picture of them up there. There's six stone water jars. All right, these are the original. Just kidding, they're not the original. That's, that's, it's about the size of them. Uh, and they were basically an Old Testament picture. If you remember the ceremonial law, we've talked about the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. All those laws were to point people to Jesus. So the ceremonial law were symbols and pictures of the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah. In this case, they'd go and they, would, they were so scared that sin was so messy, let's wash our hands before we go in. Let's wash our hands, wash our hands. So they're cleaning the outside, but they're not cleaning the inside. And you're gonna see that Jesus is like, I'm gonna clean the inside first and then the outside will take care of itself. But as you go through here, look at, how, look at verse seven and eight and look at how many steps of obedience that you see. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. It's like the concierge. So they took it. So Fill, they filled, draw, they drew, take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. Well, listen to me, loved one. They didn't understand what was about to happen. They didn't understand this was about to be the first recorded miracle. They didn't know that at all. They didn't. They didn't know what was about to happen. And it took some work. It took some work. I mean, again, all right, so you got six 20 to 30 gallon ones. And this wasn't like you'd go over there to your Berkey or go over even to your well. You'd have to like go outside of town usually, fill those things up and bring them back. It's not that it was easy. It wasn't convenient. It's not like they're like, oh, I feel like going to the well all these times. That's not what it is. They're like, you know what? Just do what he said. And it's a link in the chain of what God wants to do in your life. It's like the miracle could be right there and the question is, am I gonna do actually what God actually says? So here's the question. What if your miracle is a faith step of obedience away? Or to put it another way, this is the part you see in all the, almost all the miracles in the Bible. Is to get the miracle, they actually had to do something. To get it, very rarely are the miracles just boom out of the blue sky. Usually God uses what you already have and then does something with it that you could not do. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so over the last, whatever, decade, we've obviously seen thousands and thousands of people saved and baptized. So just think about that miracle just of saving people. We've seen, again, addictions broken, marriages restored, all that stuff. But think about the links in the chain that have to take place when, before that miracle occurs. I mean, you've got somebody, somebody invites them, somebody then greets them in the parking lot, somebody opens the door for them, maybe hands them a Gospel of John deal, they come in here, somebody's cleaned up in here, 
right? Finance team is like paid the bills. So it's, some of you think it's too cold in here, but it's cool in here. The music is rehearsed during the week, so they come up and just, just do an awesome job. I come up and do my little deal, and then guess what? Then Jesus says what only he can do, and Jesus saves. You're a link in the chain. You're a link in the chain. You are a link. God uses our obedience to do the miracles. I mean, personally, when I came to Christ at 17 in Terry Richter's office at Ryder High School in Wichita Falls, Texas, he was the last link in the chain. He didn't even play that big a role in the first few links of the chain. That was other coaches and brothers and they were telling me the gospel and sharing the gospel and then somehow I find myself in this circle with a bunch of other athletes, I'm the only lost one and the coach leads me to Christ. And my question would be this, or the comment would be this, it would just be this, some of you are praying for a miracle, you are. You're praying for the prodigal to come home, believe me, I understand that. You're praying for the prodigal, you're praying for some financial situation. You're praying, that, man, I'm lonely. I'm new to Asheville or I'm new to Franklin or I'm new to Hendersonville and I'm lonely. I gotta, I gotta find somebody. Your marriage is falling apart. Let me ask you the question. Have you done what you are capable of doing? Have you done the part God asked you to do? Or to put it another way, have you done everything you have been counseled to do? A spiritual authority or a spiritual leader speaks into your life. It obviously lines up with what the Bible says. Have you done that? Have you done that? I mean, just think about it. Moses had a rod. David had a slingshot. The widow with oil put the jars. I mean, think about the most famous one, the little boy with the fishes and feeding of the 5,000. You ever thought about that? We've talked about this one before, but realize that Jesus did not need the loaves and the fishes, correct? I mean, he's talking to his disciples, like, what's out there? What's out there? Like, oh, nothing, nothing. Oh, this little boy, he's got a little bit, which is nothing for 5,000 men, which probably equates to, let's say, 15,000 people. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. He's got to feed these people. He looks at it, and you've got a little bit of loaves and a little bit of fishes. And what does Jesus say? Perfect. That is exactly right. Jesus did not need, he didn't need the five, he didn't need the loaves. He didn't need the fish. He chose to do it that way. And that's the pattern you see. And Jesus could have just said, you're filled. And everybody, all those 5,000, they're just like, oh man, that's the greatest meal I forgot to ever, I ever ate. You know, he'd just been filled. We talked about before, he could have put up a Chick-fil-A right there, right there on the seashore. He could have done a number of things, but he chose to use what was already there. What has God already put in your life and asking you to use? For some of you, it's gonna be here in a few minutes and you just pray and you cry out to God and you take God at his promises. It's like, you know what? I'm gonna to call to God in my day of trouble and he will deliver me and I will glorify him. Others of you, it is your community group, your connect group, people coming alongside you. Others of you, it's just the word. Others of you, it's repentance. Psalm 66 says, you know what? Iniquity they have hidden in their hearts so that I may not, I, I won't hear them. God's like, let's deal with this. Before you want your miracle, let's deal with this sin over here. And here's what's awesome. God's a good God. He loves to bless his kids. Check out what verse nine and 10 says. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. In a little parentheses, a little commentary by John, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And here's what I referred to earlier. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. That's what he's saying. Everybody serves the good stuff first. 
That's because everybody was sober first, all right? So everybody at the first, when they can actually tell how good the wine is, that's what normally happens. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Why? Because the stuff that God gives is always better than the stuff the world gives. You think, you think Jesus in his first miracle was gonna give some lame, cheap box wine? <laughs> he was not, all right? He just wasn't doing that. It's like, this is a reflection of the new life. It's gonna be a sign, as you're gonna see. It's a picture of what Jesus will do in your life as well. So here's the last marker. Marker number three is miracles flow to the glory of Jesus. Miracles flow toward the glory of God. You gotta ask a question. Why do I want what I want? Why do I want this? Look at me. Why do I want this? Why do I want the job? Is it to be generous with other people or is it just to raise my standard of living? Why do I want my prodigal to come home? Is it just so my reputation looks better? Is it for the glory of God? Why do I want my marriage to thrive and make it? Is it just so that I'm not embarrassed? Or is it because, you know what, my marriage is to be a reflection of the gospel and the gospel is what glorifies God. Is, is that it? Loved ones, why do you want, why do you want it? Here's verse 11, this is the last verse. This, that miracle he just did, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. We come back to that, we talked about it week one. And his disciples believed in him. That's Underline that word sign, circle it, highlight it, whatever it is, because you're going to see it throughout the Gospel of John. Sign is kind of what it sounds like in the way we use it today. Like if you're driving to Charlotte and you see a sign that says, you know what, Charlotte's 79 miles, you understand that, you know what, it's not about the sign. It's not about the sign. The sign is just a marker, just a marker. The destination is Charlotte. And so here it's saying, you know what? This is a sign. This is a picture. This is an indicator of something that is going to come. It's like, this is a picture that Jesus is the son of God. He is the king. This is his kingdom. And so when you look at it like this, here's what uh, John would say at the end of his book. He said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's what it's saying, loved ones, is when you look at these miracles, and there's seven that the book revolves around, when you look at these miracles, you've got to understand it's not just about his raw power. It's not just about that. This is not a PR stunt. It's not just about his raw power. It is all about his redemptive purpose. It's about, it's pointing toward what he came for. It's pointing toward the cross. It's pointing to, you know, there's going to be a day when we celebrate like we did last week. You know what? This wine is going to be indicative of the blood that I'm going to shed for you on a cross. And you look at it in... Uh, Stone jar, it's not just clean hands, but I'll give you a, a clean heart. And it, it says he manifested his glory. Glory is the evidence that God is at work. It's the fingerprints of God. And can I just say the biggest prayer request I've ever had for our church, it always has been, is that you know what? The fingerprints of God would be on the stuff we do. It's amazing when you all do things like build houses for people who lose their houses. It's amazing when you sponsor kids with compassion. It's amazing when you share your faith at Advent or Borg Warner or wherever that is. It's amazing, but the bottom line is, if God doesn't show up and God doesn't get the glory, we're just, we're just putting up a circus is all we're doing. If God doesn't get the glory, because here's what John the Baptist said. He said, as Jesus increases, I gotta decrease. As we lift him up, we just gotta, we gotta shrink back in the shadows. And so when you look at this, evidence for God at work, 
He starts off the whole book by saying it's happened in creation. I mean, you and I should know that. And you step out and you see a beautiful sky, you're like, there is a God, God is great. You go over there and you see Max Patch and you look out and you see 100 mile views. Man, it's an awesome God, that's creation. John the Baptist understood that as well. John the Baptist said, you know what? I am not the one you're looking for. That's last week. I'm not the one, I'm not the one. You know why? Because God is not gonna share, listen to me, love. This is the healthiest thing we can do. I'm gonna talk to that college next week about that in my 18 and a half minutes doing a commencement. It's like, bottom line is this. Bottom line is, listen, it's not about getting it. It's about giving the glory to God. And God is not gonna share the glory with anybody because it's unnatural. I told you a story one time. There's a story coming out right after World War II, the soldiers were coming home and a lot of the pro athletes had been drafted to go over there and fight and they were returning. And one of them was the guy that played for the Yankees named Joe DiMaggio. And DiMaggio, he wasn't back playing ball yet, but what he did is he, as he came into Yankee Stadium and they were playing and so forth, he had his little four-year-old son, his namesake, little Joe, uh, by his side. And as he comes in, they're just gonna take a seat and they're just gonna watch the ball game a little bit. And about that time, a few fans recognize him and a few more fans recognize him and then a section recognizes him. And pretty soon they start this chant. It's like, Joe, Joe DiMaggio, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. And it just, it just starts to go louder and louder and louder. And pretty soon his little four-year-old, he's like, look, dad, they know who I am. I mean, they know, it's like, no. And that's funny when a four-year-old does that. It's tragic though, when a church does that. We gotta understand all this stuff that's for the, that's for, if God doesn't get the glory, we just have messed it up. But, but God wants to get glory through his church, correct? He wants to, and, and he wants to get glory in your life. And uh, I got this email, I was thinking earlier in the week, it's like, man, I didn't have a lot of illustrations and I, two of them came back to back. And I got a pastor friend who we prayed for each other for a couple years and he had a, a, a prodigal son and he prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him. And I prayed for him. His son's name is Josh. So I, was, I prayed for him a ton. Obviously, kind of near and dear. And this is a good friend. And anyway, this happened. I got this email on, uh, I guess, Tuesday. And all he said was, this is a public face. This is the only reason I'm sharing it. It was a public Facebook post his son had just put out after, I mean, I don't know how many hours of prayer have gone up for this young man. But here's what he said public Facebook post, he said, and I quote, eight years ago today, my life was unrecognizable from who I am now. I was a 28-year-old kid, scared to death, dealing with a dual diagnosis, polydrug addiction, as well as a potentially long-term prison sentence ahead of me. God heard my cries for the renewal of my mind and freedom from my bondage. He made my path straight that day and I've been in his hands ever since. I am so thankful today for a family that prayed for me and was there for me the best way they knew how for 15 years. I'm thankful for the community of people that helped me buy food when I couldn't buy anything but dope. I'm thankful for the people that paid for hotel rooms for me to get off the streets when I had no shelter. I'm thankful for the difficult truths that were told to me during the time by people further down the road than me. All of that to say God is a big God and if he can deliver me, he can deliver anybody. And loved ones, you might've walked in here, you might've slinked in here, thinking, you know what? God can't do it. God can do it. God can do it. God can do it. And in many cases, God will do it. 
And God wants to do it in his church. Ephesians chapter three, verse 20, it says, God is more than able to do, imagine more than we can even think or imagine. And then the next verse or the next part of the verse says, so that God would get glory in his church. You don't think this, you don't think God would be glorified if all over built more church today? And in the weeks ahead, marriages would be renewed? You don't think God would get the glory if prodigals are turned home? You don't think God would get the glory if addictions got broken? You don't think God would get the glory if we got generous with our communities? You don't think that would happen? You don't think God would get the glory if people just listening right now would repent and embrace Jesus? Yes, he would get the glory. The question is, the question is, is not does God want that to happen? Really the question is, do we want that to happen? That's the question. Bible says we have not because we ask not. And let me just one last thing. I understand it's hard to believe sometimes. That's why I've told you my favorite verse right now is I would have despaired if I did not believe I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 27, 13, I would have despaired if I didn't believe that I'd see the goodness of the Lord, not in just in heaven, but right down here. And maybe that's the verse for you. Maybe that's the verse for you. You know what, I would have despaired if I didn't believe that God would do that. Sometimes though, you need somebody to just come alongside and believe with you. So, I mean, this week I was on the phone with our good friend, Clayton King. We were talking about something else and and I was actually kind of struggling. I was like, just man, I tell you, I just... You know, I was, I was waffling. I wasn't sure to do it. And I was like, I was trying to play it super, super safe. And he's like, you know what? If you're asking me, Bruce, he goes, here's what I do. And he kind of said, here's what I do. And I, I remember telling him, I was like, you know what? Sometimes I just, I just kind of needed you to believe for me. I just kind of needed your, I needed you to come alongside and believe with me. And then he said back to me, he said, you know what? You've done that about six times in my life. It's about time I do that for you. And you know what? Just his faith for me and praying for me they just made all the difference. So here's what we're gonna do. We've talked about if, you, if you're just getting back from, just getting back from Florida or California or wherever it is, man, welcome back. Bottom line, one of the things we're trying to do when we feel it's God honoring is responding anytime we've praised and preached is not just to sit there and leave and go get a donut, all right? It's, it's like, how do, we, how do we respond? And sometimes that's by just going after it and a little bit more praise and worship, and sometimes that's praying. Sometimes that's praying right down here. If, you, if, you're, if you're new, all these things are these, it kind of goes back to my nominal Episcopal background. It's like, we gotta have some prayer benches, all right? We gotta have some prayer benches. So this is there. You know, my, my goal is one day we're gonna have to put like rugs out there so because we don't have enough room up here. It's not now, but it's, it's not never either. So here's what we're gonna do and it, it, all the different campuses. I know God has put some stuff on your heart. I know you got some, and, and maybe it's just you're a mama and you're like, you know what, I don't like to, I, I'm fearful of the direction that I see my kids going. And maybe you're just a mama, you wanna come up here. And so if you would do this, uh, just bow your heads for a second, your heads bowed and eyes closed at different locations as well. If you're online, you bow your heads if you would for a minute as well. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. And we, when we ask, we ask with the wrong motives. One of the best things we can do is just ask boldly for the glory of God. Ask boldly for the glory of God. God, I'm coming and I'm asking. I'm not telling you how to do it. If you notice, I mean, the mom didn't even tell Jesus how to do it. He just presented the problem to her. He's like, hey, Jesus, here's the problem. And then just go do what he says. So when you pray, you don't have to tell Jesus how to fix it, but he loves you and he wants to hear from you and just say, Jesus, I don't know how you're gonna fix it. We learned in Romans 8 that he will take my prayers and he will situate them and straighten them out so they're good, good prayers by the time they reach heaven. The Bible says, come to a throne of grace with boldness and confidence in your time of need. 
What are you gonna find there? Mercy, that's what the Bible says. And so wherever you are, here's the way we're gonna do it. We're gonna sing a little song, it's gonna stay soft. Your heads are bowed, but I would just say there are many people, Brevard, Hendersonville, West Asheville, Franklin, East Asheville, Arden, that you need to get yourself up to that altar and just say, God, you gotta do it. Just ask God for a miracle, for the glory of God, say, would you do this? For the glory of God, would you bring my prodigal home? For the glory of God, would you help my marriage get stronger? For the glory of God, would you save my nephew? God, for the glory of God, would you save me? I mean, how awesome is it if you came up here on your knees, gave your life to Christ on your knees at the front of a church? How awesome would that be? Now, you can do it at your seat, but surrender just means it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what God says. So I'm just going to back away. The music's going to start. Campus pastor will get here in a second. As that music plays, get up out of that seat. There'll be people down here that want to pray with you just like Clayton did with me. It's like, hey, I need somebody to believe for me. I need somebody to believe with me. They'd be glad to pray with you. Just come up and say, hey, would you pray for me? Pray for my marriage. Would you come pray for my prodigal? Right now, get up out of your seat. Come on, folks.